0: This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 103. Feel free to turn there in your Bible so you can follow along as I read Psalm 103, verses 1 through 22. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Jared Lawson. Uh, I am a pastor at the Parkway Church. If you're driving down Virginia and you pass a church that looks like two buildings connected, that's Parkway. We built the first part. And then we were like, let's build a second part, and then they didn't sell those bricks anymore, I guess. It was before I got there. So they just built a second building and put a hallway there, so it's, it's real nice. But uh, I, I, I want to tell you I'm very, very honored to be here this morning. I don't say that flippantly. I love your church, and I love your pastor, and I hope he's having fun, you know, out in some ranch or whatever he's doing Right now, but uh, I I pray for you often. In fact, the property that y'all just bought is just north of my neighborhood, so I actually changed my route to go home. So I drive by it uh, and I, I pray for you guys. I pray as I drive into my neighborhood that once you guys build a building and move there permanently, that the word of our living God would go forth into our neighborhood, that my neighbors would hear the gospel from you. And as, I don't know, 30,000 new houses are being built throughout McKinney around where y'all are going to be building, that the witness of the glorious Savior through you would pour throughout those streets. So this isn't just a pulpit filling for me because Chris isn't here. I love your church. And I pray that you would flourish, and I pray that the name of our Lord would be made known through your witness. So, Psalm 103 will be there this morning. Uh, All scripture, as we know, or as we should know, is equally inspired, right? But if we're honest, there are some scriptures that just mean a little bit more to us. They're kind of your, you know, meat and potatoes passages, you know, forgive people's sins, you love God, stuff like that. And then there are passages that just seem to take you to the mountaintop. And you just see beauty everywhere you look. And in my opinion, Psalm 103 is one of those passages. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 20th or 19th century, says this about Psalm 103. As in the lofty Alps, some peaks rise above all others. So among even the inspired Psalms, there are heights of song Which overtop the rest. This 103rd psalm has ever seemed to be the Mount Rosa, which is the highest peak in the Swiss Alps, the Mount Rosa of the divine chain of the mountains of praise, glowing with a brighter light than any of the rest. So I wanna look at, I wanna go to the top of this psalm this morning. And when we do, what we're gonna see is King David, this man after God's own heart, go before his Lord to pray. And something is going to happen to him that's common to all of us, something not great, and he's going to actually fight it with a tool that is common to all of us as well. And by the end of the psalm, we're going to see something incredible happen. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump in to this psalm. Father, you are unthinkably glorious, and your Son is so wonderful, and our minds are so often on other, lesser things that do not deserve our attention. You are the only one who satisfies, you are the only one who our eyes should be set on, and so I pray that as we look at your word you would lift our eyes by the power of your spirit and we would just simply behold your glory, that we would see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We look to your son and all the fears that we walked in here with would fade. All the sins that perhaps we walked in here clinging to, we would just loosen our grip because your spirit is moving in our hearts and that we would be satisfied in you. The only one who can actually bring satisfaction. Only you can do that, Father. The best thing I can do here is temporary motivation that will fade by the parking lot. You are the only one who can bring a change to our hearts through your infinitely powerful Word. So that is what we ask You to do this morning, Lord, that we would not leave simply challenged but would be changed by Your Spirit, that we would look more like Your Son. We would be conformed more into His image as a result of looking to Your Word. Do that to us, Father. We pray in Your Son's holy name. Amen. Okay, look at verse 1. We're going to cover this whole psalm. Look at verse 1. "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name.'" Stop there. There's something very, very important to notice here. It's actually key to understanding the whole rest of the psalm. Who is David talking to? "'Bless the Lord, O my soul.'" Not talking to God, not talking to others talking to himself. You'll see uh, different psalmists do this all the time. Perhaps the most famous is Psalm 42. Why are you so downcast, O oh, my soul? Rise up. Praise God. Right? The psalmist screaming at himself. Why, why is your face cast down? Look up. Look at your glorious God. And here we see David doing the same thing. So here's the scene. Here's what's happening here. David The man after God's own heart, the great king of Israel who danced naked before the ark of God, has gone before his Lord, and he feels dry. He feels apathetic. The emotions aren't there. It feels as if God is a billion miles away. That's his problem. Now, here's the key question. What is he going to do about it? He's apathetic before the Lord. Is he going to listen to his emotions and just say, you know what, I'll just pray tomorrow. I'll wake up on the right side of the bed tomorrow. Maybe I got some bad sleep. I just had a weird dream. I'm not really feeling it. Does he theologically kind of reason his way out of it? You know, we know God's sovereign. And so does it really matter that I pray right now? He's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Does he kind of reason his way out of it? Does he listen to his emotions? No. What David is going to do instead of listening to his kind of apathetic emotions for the rest of this psalm, as he's going to grab a hold with all of his might the truth that he knows about God, namely his salvation, his character, his compassion, and his kingdom. And we're going to see him pour these buckets of living water over his dry, apathetic soul. And by the end of this psalm, we'll actually get to see the result, God's salvation, His character, His compassion, and His kingdom. So let's look at this first kind of bucket of living water, this truth that He's grabbing a hold of and He's preaching to His own heart. Verse 2, "'Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases.'" who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Grabbing a hold of God's salvation, where does he start? What's the first thing he says? You are the one who forgives all my iniquity. He starts with forgiveness. Why does he start there? Because, quite simply, there is an infinite gap between an infinitely holy, glorious God and sinful man. And if you don't do something about that gap, that eternal gap, nothing else matters. We might as well stop at verse 2. None of these other benefits matter. His healing will only be temporary, His redemption will never lead to reconciliation, and satisfaction will be short lived if you don't have forgiveness. And so that's the first thing David grabs a hold of and tells his own heart, drink this in. He forgives all your iniquity. He doesn't stop there. He says, you are the one who heals all my diseases. You are the one who redeems my life from the pit, from the grave, when death was so close to me as if it had its fingers wrapped around me. You redeemed me. And remember who's talking, okay? David is very, very, very familiar with death. What's his resume when he wants to go fight Goliath and Saul's like, I don't know, you're kind of puny looking. Why, uh, if our whole army can't do it, why should you do it? What does David say? <laughs> well, I'm a shepherd, Saul. Saul. And, you know, every now and then, as happens in, you know, shepherding uh, endeavors, a lion will show up in a bear, and they'll grab your sheep, and they'll run away. And so I just will go grab, you know, the lion and kill it real quick and get my sheep. And Saul's like, oh, okay, go ahead, as if that's just some normal occurrence. Like, okay. So he faces lions and bears all the time. He faces Goliath, someone who is so intimidating, the entire Israelite army is cowering in the shadows. And he almost is killed by his own family time and time and time again. Saul, his father-in-law, throws spears at him more than once. Saul hunts him down with the army of Israel. He's hiding in caves. David is very, 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 very familiar with the grasp of death. And here he says, I escape death not because of my craftiness, not because of my skill. It's you who has redeemed me time and time and time again. You've forgiven me, you heal me, you redeem me, and then look at verse 4. He's going to pivot a little bit. Look at verse 4. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Notice what David is doing here. So many of us stop at the bad things that God removes from our life. We just stop. Thank you for your forgiveness, and that's all we talk about. I mean, we're good Protestants, justification by faith. That's a good thing. David, notice what he's doing. He's pressing in to the good thing God gives as well. He doesn't stop at forgiveness, he's pushing through. You also crown me, you also satisfy me. We have glorious forgiveness in Jesus. That's not where the story stops. God brings you into his family. He adopts you as his son and his daughter and says, Come, know the eternal riches that are in my son. David doesn't just stop at what God has saved him from. He keeps pushing to what God has saved him for. You don't just save me from death. You fill me with life. You don't just forgive and heal. You crown and you satisfy. He says, You're the one who crowns me, not with perishable things like gold or silver. You crown me. With your very character, steadfast love, mercy, that's the crown you put on my head. You satisfy me with your own goodness. I'm full of satisfaction, so much so that it's like I'm young again. In your presence, oh God, he might as well cry out, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, O oh God, there is pleasure forevermore. There's nothing lacking in your satisfaction. I don't need to go anywhere else for my satisfaction. I am completely full in you. The Lord is my portion and my cup. I have no good apart from you. You crown me and you satisfy me. Do You see what David is doing. Instead of listening to his own heart and saying, eh, maybe another time, I'll come up and pray. Rather than listening to his emotions, he's preaching to his own heart. So, here's the question for us several thousand years later. How do you respond when you're not feeling it? When you wake up early, if you wake up early, go before the Lord to pray, and God feels a trillion miles away, do you surf Twitter? Do you say, eh, other stuff, you know, God knows what I would have prayed for anyway? Do you just go away, or do you just kind of get locked into this idea of, I guess he's just a distant God who doesn't really love me? Do you give in to those feelings, or like David, do you preach to your own heart? Most of us, when we go to pray, actually have our focus in the exact wrong place. Rather than focusing on God's work, we focus on our work. We go before the Lord focused on how we've been doing, how we've been performing, and when you do that, you will go down one of two roads. You'll either go down the road of guilt because you haven't already been praying enough. You wake up at six. You could have been you could have woke up at five if you were a real Christian, focusing on how much you've been praying already, or you'll feel pride. He must be pleased with me. I woke up at four. Right? You have two roads: pride or guilt. Here's the problem with that: neither of those roads. Is ever going to stir your heart to worship him? Neither of those roads will ever actually fight apathy. Do you see how radically different David's approach is? He's going before him and he doesn't focus on his work, his focus is on God's work. Not what he has done for God lately, but rather what God has done for him. What is David bringing to the table? What is David's work that he's actually laying before the Lord? iniquity that needs to be forgiven, diseases that need to be healed, and he's wallowing in a pit, right? He's not bringing his work before God. Rather, it's God's work despite David's work that is actually living water to his dry soul. You see how radically different that is than what we so often do. His eyes are not here. His eyes are there, He understands, though he's several thousand years before Jonathan Edwards, he understands the idea that you did nothing to contribute to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And therefore his eyes are on a God who saves, who forgives iniquity, who heals diseases, who redeems from the pit, who crowns with his character, and who truly satisfies. So that's bucket number one of living water over his dry soul, God's salvation. Now, what's the next bucket? He's not done yet. When you see such a glorious salvation, the natural question would be, who is a God who does such things? Who is a God who forgives such wretched iniquity? And that's exactly what David is going to ask, and he's going to go to this next bucket, which is God's character. Who is this God who saves like that? That's the next bucket of living water over his dry soul, God's Character. Look at verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The first element of his character David's going to look at is, You, O oh God, are the perfect, impartial, just judge who sees the unseen, who hears the one no one pays attention to, whose eyes are on the forgotten. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18 the Lord, your God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner and gives him food and clothing. And in David's day, I don't think anything would be more radically unique in this idea that God sees the unseen. He works righteousness for those who are oppressed. Because in David's day, the idea, the common idea is God, the gods, the gods of the other nations, so-called gods, care only about the people on the top, care only about the rich. Right? It was thought, how did they get rich? The gods must favor them. They have no time for the oppressed, no time for the ones that the world has no time for. Yahweh, on the other hand, says this about himself, Psalm 68, Sing to the Lord, sing praises to his name, a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. He doesn't show partiality to the high class. He can't be bought off with a bribe. He gives justice and righteousness to the oppressed, and there's no one, no matter how low, that goes unseen by him. One of my favorite stories in the scriptures is the story of Genesis 16, which is kind of a weird one to be one of your favorites. God promises Abram at that time, Abraham, and Sarah they're going to have a kid. And like most people in the Bible, they don't believe God. And so Sarah kind of takes things into her own hands and says, why don't you go sleep with my servant girl, Hagar, which Abraham gleefully obeys, I guess. He does it instantly Uh, Hagar becomes pregnant. Sarah then gets really mad, and Hagar is kind of driven into the wilderness. So you have a slave girl forced into this kind of weird situation, obeys, is treated horribly, and then is thrown out into the wilderness, pregnant and waiting to die. And the angel of the Lord comes to her, tells her of his plan for her, of his plan for the baby in her womb, and says, go back. And she says, surely you are the God who sees I can't think of someone lower than Hagar and her great confession. You're the God who sees. You're the God who cares for me as I'm out in the wilderness waiting to die. There is no depths you can go that your father does not see you. If I go to the heights of heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. That's God's character. That's the first thing David is Telling his heart, grab on to this. He can't be bought off. He's the God who sees the unseen. He's the just judge. But that's not all he's going to raise up. Look at verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He made known his ways to Moses. That seems a little bit off topic, right? We're talking about God's character. How does him just showing up to Moses? What does that have to do with God's character? What David's actually quoting here is one of the most significant moments in all of Israel's history. We all know, well, if you spent any time in church, one of the first stories you're told is the story of the golden calf. God goes, gets a nation of slaves, delivers them miraculously from the most powerful nation In the world, brings them through the Red Sea, parks them at the bottom of Mount Sinai, says, I want to be your God, I want you to be my people. And as Moses is receiving the law so that they can receive this new identity as God's people, what do they do? On their wedding night, they commit adultery. Golden calf. And God is furious, and Moses intercedes, and God forgives them. And that's usually where we stop in the story, but there's actually something incredible that happens next. God, or Moses sees God's incredible forgiveness, and like David in this story, he, sa- he wants to know who is the God that does such incredible things. And so he says what? Show me your glory. I want to see your face, this God who forgives such rebellious people. And God says, You can't see my face and live. No one can see my face and live. So here's what I'll do. I'll put you on this rock and I'll pass before you and I'll declare to you my name. I'll declare to you my character, who I am. Which up to that point, all they know about God is he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here we have this story as God passes before Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God passes before and declares his name, declares his character, declares who he is. And remember, Moses is so transformed by this encounter with the character of the living God that he has put a veil over his face. And so David, as he's exalting God's character, remembers this story, this great story in Israel's history, and he's saying he made known his ways to Moses. He's quoting this and then quotes God's character that we've sung this morning, merciful Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So, how does that stir your heart to worship? How does remembering this story stir up your heart? How, how does it pour living water to his dry soul two ways? The first is so simple we may have missed it. The first thing is that your God is a God who makes himself known to his people. Your God is a God who makes himself known known. Again, David's day, this would have been incredibly radical. All the other gods, false gods of the nations, don't care about telling you what they're like. You've got to guess. You want to know what the gods are like? You want to know what their will is? You got to read the tea leaves. You got to take a lamb and cut it open and have a a priest read the liver or things like that. The gods are up there with their arms crossed, waiting on you to guess what they're like. Think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal not so with Yahweh Yahweh though infinitely glorious comes down and makes himself known he says here's what I'm like your god is a god who reveals who he is again we so often get this backwards we we think you know what's god's will for my life and we imagine him at the end of the road with his arms crossed with his gray beard and he's frowning waiting on us to guess right nothing could be further from the character of your God who comes down and said, here's who I am. That's the first thing. David is saying, preach this, hear this, O heart. Your God comes down and says, here's who I am. But that's not all, he doesn't stop there. It's not just that he reveals who he is. David is saying, look what he reveals. Look at the character that he does reveal. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and overflowing with steadfast love. Theoretically, God could have come down and revealed that he's a tyrant. He could have said, I'll pass before you, Moses, and I'll tell you who I am. I'm infinitely powerful. I love chaos and I love child sacrifice. Could have revealed that character, but he doesn't. What, what does he reveal? This is what David is exalting He's merciful and he's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's not quick-tempered like you and me. He's abounding in steadfast love. His faithful covenant love abounds from Him. He will not always chide. He will not always rebuke, nor will He keep His anger forever. Even in His anger, it's infused with mercy. There's a limit to His anger. Nor will He keep His anger forever. Forever, David is quite simply saying, what he reveals, the character that God reveals, is infinitely greater than anything you or I could have imagined. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, won't always chide or keep his anger forever. So David, again, is reminding his own soul, look to God and say, I know who you are. Not just what you've done, who you are. You're the God who can't be bought. You're the God who sees the forgotten. You're the God who comes down and reveals who you are, that you're merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's not just what you've done. It's not just bucket number one. It's not just your salvation that stirs my dry heart. It's who you are that stirs my heart to worship. That's living water over my dry soul. Again, notice David isn't just stopping at what God has done for him. He keeps going to who God is. If you just stop at what God does for you, at best, he's a divine butler. And you'll be grateful when he brings you stuff and when he does stuff for you. But when you don't need anything, you have no need for him. If you only focus on what he's done for you. But David pushes past and says, thank you for what you've done. And thank you, praise you for who you are. You're the God who I know because you've come down and said, here's who I am. So again, the question for us is, do you do this? One of the most important questions you'll have to ask yourself as a Christian is, is God a means to another end, or is He the glorious end of all ends? Are you a Christian because you get God's stuff, or are you a Christian because you get God? Does your heart cry out, the Lord is my portion in my cup? I have no good apart from you. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always. You and you alone are my greatest treasure. Is he the end of all ends or is he a means to another end? And let me just tell you, he is the end of all ends. You were saved, not so that he can give you a mansion or a street of gold or all the awesome things of heaven. You were saved to know him. What does Jesus say in John 17? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You were saved, you were forgiven, you were redeemed so that you could be adopted, so that you could know him, so that you could run into his loving arms and have eternal fellowship with him, where he wipes away every tear and we declare, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And that's what David has his eyes set on. Praise you for your glorious salvation. Praise you for what you've done. And praise you for who you are. That's the second bucket of living water that he's pouring over his dry soul. What's bucket number three? When you see this incredible character of God, the natural question would be, how does a God of that character deal with us? If we are sinful man, if what the Bible says about our hearts is true, how does a God who is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love, how does he deal with his people that are constantly rebelling against him? That's David's question, and it leads to the third bucket, and it's God, a God of that character, is compassionate. He's compassionate. Look at verse 10. Third bucket is God's compassion. Look at verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. David says, what does it look like for that character to interact with sinful man? The first thing he says is, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And again, so many of us, when we approach the living God, we don't approach him as forgiven children. We approach him as moralists. Again, focused on our own works. And here's what we'll say, although we never dare say this out loud, this is the thoughts going in our head. Yes, I'm a sinner. You know, we have to say that I'm a Christian. But, I mean, come on, there are way worse people. I mean, I'm I'm conservative. You know, my kids go to church, I teach them to have good values, and I can point to about a trillion worse people who are actually ruining the world. And so, yeah, I'm a sinner. Sorry, God. But come on, let's, let's be real. Right? Those are the, we, again, never say, dare say that out loud. But that's what we think. And notice what you're saying there. You're saying, yes, okay, bad. Yeah, say the right theological thing. But I'm generally good for you, God. And so where's my reward? Give me what you owe me. And a way to see this is when bad things happen to your life, do you get mad at God? As if he doesn't owe you bad things, right? Look at what I've done, God. Give me what you owe me. And David here is saying, you're right. He does owe you. You're just wrong about what he owes you. Because if you've sinned once before an infinitely holy God, and we're all born into sin. One sin before an infinitely holy God is infinitely worthy of one thing. He owes you one thing, His eternal wrath. You're saying, look at what I've done, give me what I deserve. David is saying, he has looked at what you've done, and praise God, He does not give you what you deserve. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. In fact, David goes one step further. Verse 11 For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. So instead of giving us what our iniquities deserve, he does two things instead. One, he removes your iniquity. And two, he gives you a love that can't be measured. He doesn't give you what you deserve. What does he give you? A love that is immeasurable. As high as the heavens are above the earth. What's David saying there? Uh, I think my parents would recognize this uh, kind of imagery. When they would, you know, I'd sit in their lap as a kid, and when they want to explain their love for me, maybe you do this. They explain their love for me, they would say something to the effect of, I love you to the moon and back. A parent feels this exploding ball of love in their heart. And how do you communicate that to a three-year-old? You just look at the furthest thing away and say, look how far that is. That's the fringes of my love for you. And David here is saying, look up and tell me when you reach the ends of the heavens. That's how great his love is for you. Look east. And tell me when it meets the West. That's how far He's removed your transgressions. Something, a word that means your crimes against Him. That's how far He's removed your transgressions from you. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear Him. I've got two kids, a two-year-old and a one-year-old, and so I know this just ball of love for those little guys. And... The more weak they are, one of the weird things about being a parent is the more weak they are, the more they fail, the more my heart just goes out to them. And David here is saying, like a father's heart going out to his kids, when you fail, when you fall, when you stumble, it moves him not to frustration, but to compassion. He doesn't get frustrated at your weakness. Rather, it moves him to compassion like a father's to his children. David keeps going. Verse 14 For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. Now, this seems kind of like a changing of the subject. So, what's going on here? Remember, David, he's he's before God, his heart is apathetic, dry, and so he's meditating on this salvation in his character, in his compassion. And here he's taken a break from looking up here to God and seeing and meditating all these things, and his eyes have gone here, as if he's saying, Let's see if there's anything in man that can stir my heart to worship. And what he finds is, no. When I look down here, there's nothing here that would dare inflame my heart to worship God. There's no self-help in David. There's no be your best you, and that's how you'll reach happiness. There's no you're enough all on your own, and that's how you'll reach fulfillment or anything like that. David says, when I look here, when I look at man, I see fragile, quickly forgotten dust. There's nothing here that would ever stir my heart to worship. But oh, when I look back up. Look at verse 17. Look at this glorious contrast. Here in man, in me, there's fragile, quickly forgotten dust. Man is dust. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those keep, who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. What's David saying here? When I look here, Again, I see weakness, I see fickleness, and I see temporary satisfaction. But oh, when my eyes go back up, I find steadfast, everlasting love from God and righteousness that pours over the generation. Do the generations, do you see the eternal difference between those two? The eternal difference between weak dust found here? and glorious, everlasting, steadfast love found in Him. Don't dare look anywhere else for life and for satisfaction. Keep your eyes up. You were made to live and move and have your being in Him. Uh, Augustine, early church father, wrote several hundred years ago this long quote, what does ambition seek except honor and glory? But only you, Lord, have a glory forever that can never be lost. What is the power of the mighty desire except to be feared? But none has power that can never be seized or stolen but you. What do the lonely and the anxious long for except a the love they cannot lose? But who can give a love that does not fade or die but you? What does weariness seek except rest? But what sure rest is there apart from you? Thus the soul commits adultery when it turns from you to seek these things that it cannot find except in you. O Lord, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Look here, you'll find dust, quickly forgotten, quickly blown away by the wind. Look And you will find everlasting, steadfast love. And so David has been on this journey throughout the psalm. And here nearing the end, we're going to get to see the actual result. He starts off, again, remember, low, dry, apathetic. And he's pouring the living water of God's truth over his heart to stir it, to to make it rise up and praise God, his salvation character and his compassionate love. And here at the end, we see the result. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What's happened here? Quite simply, David's dry heart has come alive. And look who he's not talking to anymore. His own soul, who's he talking to? Quite simply, all of creation. He starts with the angels, and he works his way down until you get that summary statement of everything, all his works. Bless the Lord, praise the Lord, and then he joins in right at the end. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. You see, when you've experienced something incredible, when you've experienced something beautiful, the natural impulse is to want to share it If you have Instagram, I guarantee you I'll find pictures of food you've eaten on there, which no one cares about, but you cared about, and you wanted everyone to know. I guarantee you, if you have kids, you've shoved your phone with a picture of your kid in about 9,000 people's faces because you love them. You can't imagine a more beautiful child. You are objectively convinced God gave you the most beautiful human being in the world as your child, and so everybody else must know When you're on vacation, say you're gazing at the mountains, you take pictures even though it never does it justice. Why? You want others to know, not just so that they know you've you've experienced something good, you want them to experience it too. You want them to experience the beauty, the majesty, and that is exactly what David is feeling here in its purest form. The Lord's salvation And his character and his compassion has stirred his heart and made it come alive. And now, literally, all of creation must see this God. His beauty must be shared to David. And again, he joins in right there at the last verse. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And I don't think he's talking to a dry soul anymore. I think he's joining in the chorus of praise as all of creation blesses this holy God. Now, you see, Incredible things can happen when you don't feel like praying. Rather than listening to his emotions, David doesn't buy that lie. Rather, grabs a hold of God's truth, his salvation, character, and compassion. And though he started off apathetic, God feeling a billion miles away, he ends by calling all of creation to praise the King of Kings. Truly an incredible psalm. And there's one question that's left for you and me how is this psalm true of us? How can we equally lay hold of all these glorious truths that David is proclaiming? Because if you noticed, I skipped over some clarifiers. The Lord's everlasting steadfast love abounds to those who keep His covenant, those who fear Him, those who remember to do His commandments. And if you're honest with yourself, we don't keep His covenant. We don't fear Him. Often, sometimes we do, often we don't, and we have broken so many commandments. And so, are all these glorious truths of the psalm just fading away as we remember who we are? How can we lay hold of these truths like David does? And there's only one way because there's only been one who has never broken covenant, there's only one who's perfectly feared him. And there's only one who's resisted every temptation and never listened to the lies of the enemy to break his perfect commandments. And for you, what's good is for God so loved the world that he sent him, that he sent his son, that he sent Jesus Christ, who is your ultimate salvation. He doesn't just forgive your iniquity as if he's wiping a dish. Rather, he says, I will take on your iniquity. The iniquity you've stored up from your own commandment breaking and your rebellion, I'll take the punishment for so that you can be washed clean. He doesn't just heal your diseases. Rather, by his stripes we are healed. He doesn't just redeem you from any pit. He redeems, he redeems you from the ultimate pit. He redeems you from hell itself so that you can have eternal life with him. He doesn't just satisfy you with generic good. He comes down and says, I am goodness himself, and I have come that you might be eternally satisfied in me. Those who come to me will never go thirsty again. He is your ultimate salvation. He's the ultimate revelation of God's character. He's the one who's truly come down. He's the exact image of God. As Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want to see your face, O God. And God says, no, you can't see my face and live. Jesus Christ says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate revelation of who God is, of His character, and He's the ultimate display of God's compassion. The infinite wrath of God that you deserve and that I deserve, He says, that cup of wrath will be poured out on me so that His cup of everlasting, steadfast love can be poured out on you. And because of him, God isn't just like a father. He doesn't just show compassion to us like a father does his children. He shows compassion to us as our father. We cry out to him, Abba, Father, because his eternal son has come down that we might be adopted as sons and daughters into the very family of God. He's our ultimate salvation character. He's the ultimate revelation of the character of God and the ultimate display of God's compassion. And he's the true king of kings seated at the right hand of God, the one before whom, as we sang this morning, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Lord. All the angels, all the mighty ones, and everyone who has ever breathed breath will use their breath to proclaim that he is Lord. The only way that this glorious psalm can be yours, that you can lay hold of it where it can be living water to your dry soul, is if you are in Christ if you rest in His loving arms. So, don't look anywhere else for your life and for your salvation. There is no righteousness here. There's no satisfaction out there. Look to Him. Robert Murray McChain, the old uh, Scottish pastor, has this famous quote that I think applies here. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace, all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. And let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh when you feel apathetic when he feels a billion miles away when you feel dull grab a hold with all your might your salvation in jesus christ god's revealed character in jesus christ and the glorious displayed compassion of god in jesus christ and let your heart soar in worship of our glorious god let's pray Father, you are unthinkable. You are unthinkably glorious. Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Our greatest idea of you, the greatest thing we could imagine of you, falls so infinitely short because you are that good and lovely and glorious. And I pray that you would keep our eyes set on the face of your Son, And as we stumble about in this life, this side of glory, that we would quickly lift our eyes, that your spirit would do a work where we quickly lift our eyes to him, knowing that he is our salvation. He is the ultimate display of who you are, of your character. And he is the ultimate display of your compassion. Make us more like him. Make him more lovely to us. And as we behold his beauty, and the incredible, incredible benefits of your salvation make the fleeting pleasures of the world or any so-called righteousness in our eyes dust that we might never look anywhere else. We love you, Father, and pray in his glorious name. Amen.